everyone. Welcome to Dairy and Animal Science Podcasts. today, which we, of course, we're all familiar with, but let me just tell you a little bit about his background. He's a native of Illinois, like many of us here. He got his uh, BS degree from the University of Illinois, also his Master of Science degree from the University of Illinois in Animal Science. He then went to the University of Minnesota and obtained a PhD degree. He had a short postdoc at Stanford in California, and then came here as an assistant professor, and in a matter of 17 or 18 years, he's he uh, moved through the ranks to become even a distinguished professor, which I see a lot of times he doesn't always use that. He's won a number of awards. Some notable ones are just the Young Scientist Award for you know Animal Science, Dairy Science, and Hoffman LaRoche Animal Growth and Development Awards. He lists over 100 publications, so he's been very productive, and he's been productive as our department head. And today he's going to give us a seminar. Thanks, Craig. Well, the, the uh, span of time from 1979 to now has gone to blaze, and uh, some of you are here when I started, and uh, I never would have predicted I'd be talking about the future of biotechnology today, given that uh, the research was cranking up in the 70s and early 80s that led to the use of RBST was hailed, and this was adopted. So when I talk about the future of food biotechnology, I'm going to focus on RBST or recombinant bovine somatotropin, but this will be really a case model of the battle that's going on in animal agriculture. And this is a battle that uh, if we don't engage in an advocacy way and do it effectively, we are going to be in the deep end of the pool. Uh, I've given this presentation in many different ways in the last year and a half. My observation is that uh, folks that work at universities, that have academic positions have largely sat in the sofa and watched this play out. And the battle is being shaped by folks that uh, have, as one of their objectives, get animal collection offshore. And I'll talk about some elements that relate to this as far as the future research funding. The short version is if we can't commercialize a discovery made in a laboratory at a university, <coughs> then is there a reason to have funding available to do that research? And there's people in Washington, these activist groups that are championing the idea that we need to have a lot less funding because it's not going to be used for anything that will lead to a viable commercial idea that becomes a product. So the future is shaped in a way that's guided by lots of things, one of which is the growing world population. This just gives you a perspective. By 2050, we'll have 9 billion people, the amount of cultivable ground per hectare acre is dropping like a rock. Uh, that leads to the question, how are we going to feed a growing world population? Uh, when you mix in uncertainties that might emerge relative to climactic conditions that impact food production and distribution, and then mix in geopolitical strife that affects food production and ongoing from day one of our existence on this planet, 
uh, you can get to a scenario where there's really a very clear argument rationale for using technologies to enhance food production efficiency. And by food production efficiency, I mean simply uh, more grapes per grapevine, more apples per tree, more milk per unit feed consumed in a dairy cow. Now, when you talk to the public about what might be some threats downstream, in Western countries, they go to the grocery store, they see it packed with stuff, food security, national security, not anything that they even think about. So when you then mix in the reality that's moving ahead of what I think, I'll call it a targeted strike on the food system using the pathogen, uh, or asymmetric bioterrorism, that could tip the food system, and certainly tip public confidence. The last thing we need to be doing now is having discussions and processes underway that are attacking science, the scientific method, and hindering our ability to develop new technologies. And one of the ironies in this public discussion is that these threats that are framed in the public uh, use the same science and methodologies that are used for biomedical application. You don't hear anybody concerned about that. I mean, anybody that has diabetes is concerned about taking the kind of human insulin. But any of you? And families or folks that have kids of short stature take recombinant human somatotropin to help them restore growth rate. They think this is the greatest thing since sliced bread. <laughs> so there's an element here of it being a discussion that's very nuanced in that it's a lot of stuff being revved up that has no basis in scientific fact. And we in the academy are largely sitting here watching this play out. And as I'll share with you, it's also being driven by some dysfunction in the dairy industry. And just to get that out of the way, the dairy industry is the most dysfunctional commodity group that I know of <laughs> on the planet. And that'll emerge uh, in a way that will become clear as I sail through this. So when the typical consumer walks into the grocery store, a retail outlet, and goes to the dairy case, they're confronted with three issues as far as their choices for milk. They can buy conventionally produced milk, not differentially labeled. They can buy RBST-free milk, and they can buy organic milk. Now, in some markets, this has converged so that you can't find conventional milk. And uh, the reality is, and as many of you know, all this milk within a fat class is the exact same as far as composition. But the dairy industry has cranked up a good milk versus bad milk marketing campaign to differentiate these two products in a way where you can charge a whole lot more for nothing additional as far as nutrient content. So, uh, what I've talked to some groups about, if Pepsi Cola ran the United States Dairy Industry, they wouldn't have a good milk versus bad milk campaign going on. And that's what we have. And I'll talk about some elements that, that are involved in this. And so I've just captured this point. So this discussion using RBST as a case study for the battle over biotechnology in the future uh, is really a differentiation without a difference. And it's being driven by a lot of folks in the dairy industry that are doing this to sell the stuff for a whole lot more. And the, the elements of their strategy, and this is a very deceptive but clever scheme, the basis is it's easy to scare people about something. You do that in 30 seconds. We can't educate them about science in 30 seconds. And the central tactic is you scare consumers. So you differentiate products based on technologies and management practices used in production. In this case, the application of RBST you feature wonderful absence claims, and I'll show you some of those. And those are intended to convey to some consumers, well, geez, the more expensive milk must not have this. I should go pay more and buy this. 
and down the road it goes. And then the thing which uh, has really cranked up the dairy producer community, especially those that use this as a profit tool, while there's a whole lot more money being made at retail, what's flowing downstream to the producer is little, if anything. So the power base in the dairy industry is not at the farm gate, it's upstream. Somebody's making a pile of money in this deal, and it's not the producer. And for lots of uh, dairy producers in Pennsylvania, that may be milking 60 to 200 cows, the use of a technology like this where you can have a technology that's size neutral and returns an investment, you make money. This is terrifically important. So we're throwing that under the bus, and I'll talk a little more about uh, some of the schemes that some of the co-ops have done to hijack producers out of using the technology. Uh, and it's just a mess, and, and this is one of the stupidest things I've ever seen. And maybe the more stupid thing is that that we in the scientific community are largely sitting here watching this unfold and, and not doing anything. And I talked to the American Dairy Science Association a couple times, or at least their board, and all I did was get them stirred up. And it just was, you know, you need to go do something that's a little bit more proactive than sitting there watching. Uh, and then I've had a, a bunch of folks from some of the co-ops, uh, Greg Wickham, who runs Dairy Lead, uh, the day after Christmas, he called me in Florida and said I was stirring the pot up, and I should be careful with that. <laughs> I, uh, I don't really know this guy. He's been paid a lot of money and a couple of bricks short of being normal. And, uh, so anyway, this is all the battle. And uh, there's an element where if you step up and speak in an advocacy way, then you get attacked. But my encouragement is, especially for the students, you got to do that. Because what's at stake here is the opportunity to do research, to have funding to do that, and do something for the greater good. If we wreck the ability to do science that can be translated, that's going to take a heck of a long time to rebuild if we ever do. Give you some idea about the, the dazzle and smoke and mirrors of this marketing scheme. Uh, this is data about uh, what's happening at retail. This is based on the second quarter American Farm Bureau Federation or Foundation Market Basket Survey. They go out and get food prices. And at the end of the second quarter, the differential on a half gallon between conventional and RBST labeled milk is 79 cents a half gallon. Same milk being uh, sold for 79 cents more. Now you ignore this stuff at the bottom. So you run that up to a 100 weight basis. At retail, there's $18.37 more being trapped at retail for the very same milk. And so you can see one of the realities that's driving this. This is a great way to grow margin. What I don't know, and nobody has told me, and nobody will, is what is the market share for RBST free milk? In a way, that doesn't matter because it must be big enough that the processors and retailers are driving this in a way to really convey that consumers want this, those hormones in milk are dangerous, and you go buy this. And you can see when that's playing out, that's a huge driving force for all of this. Here are two examples of, of uh, labels. One on the left from Horizon, the Horizon's owned by Dean's Food. This is sort of my poster child. Uh, they proudly tout this, you know, Horizon Organic, this wonderful cow, jumping over what I don't know. And then the absence claim is produced without the use of antibiotics, added growth hormones, or dangerous pesticides. Now, don't get too leathered up. Well, how, how do you think that's interpreted by folks that don't know? They don't appreciate that milk's the most inspected food on the planet. 
that at retail, milk that's sold is, is, uh, has not got any antibiotics in it. And we're certainly not dumping dangerous pesticides in milk. Craig? I doubt if it is really fat-free, too. Skim is not oh. fat-free. And so the, what, what milk, uh, those folks in the, in the industry have done that sell milk, from a labeling standpoint, they've gone down the path of seeking forgiveness rather than approval. I mean, this is clearly a deceptive label. Now, Burn Dairy, which is based in Syracuse, they have this colorful card that says, certified to come from cows, not treated with RBST. And they'll have some burgers <coughs> on the side touting the virtues of their cows and the pastures and natural production. And then they have the disclaimer down here, which basically says that there's no significant difference between this milk and FDA makes them do that. Well, you can't even read that. And on Horizon, you know, it's on the back side of the cart in, in micro font. And so this, this is not an accident. This is a very clever scheme. And so the, 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 one of the key aspects is to scare people, and that's the way you differentiate the product, have them pay more for it. And then this fits in in a way that's almost like the perfect storm with the organic crowd. Now, if people want to do organic food production, that's OK. If they want to sell it, that's okay. But it'd be nice to think that we could do it in a way where it's an attitude rather than attacking one sector of the food system and competing them against each other. Because this is crazy. Especially when this stuff is selling for you know two X more, maybe three X more than conventional. To uh, further give you a sense about what's taking place, and I call this a consumer culture. Uh, you would think that there would be groups in the dairy industry like DMI, which is where some of the checkoff money goes, would be interested in defending the brand name of milk, especially since $5 billion have been spent in checkoff dollars since its inception in 83. So $5 billion has been collected from dairy producers in the United States, used for research support programs, for marketing and promotion, building up this brand name of milk as wholesome, nutritious, you should include it in your diet, and at the same time, we've got this good milk versus bad milk battle that cranked up over a year ago. And DMI did not do anything to step into the fray to represent or defend the brand name. That's interesting, isn't it? I called them uh, in January. And what they sort of said in a couple conversations was they didn't want to get bloody. That was the exact yeah. quote. Mm -hmm. Did not want to get bloody. Their greatest concern is that they, that they would stir up enough producers that there'd be a an effort to get a referendum to have the checkoff stop. So their first concern is their revenue stream. And their budgets in the public domain, they have a cash reserve now of about 14 million. They trap about $90 million in DMI from this checkoff a year. So that's one element of this. And as I've talked or discussed, BST, uh, this is not an attack on this technology, but there'll be a whole bunch of others. And at the end of the talk, I've got a list of those. And that's just my list. There could well be other things. And obviously, uh, producers are really stirred up because they're best positioned to make decisions about what they would like to do as far as running the farm, using best management practices or technologies. They don't want to have it mandated to them. And so in the midst of all this is the reality that if this goes, this will be the first in a series of dominoes. And we'll push towards something to look more and more burdensome from a regulatory standpoint for production agriculture. That will come with a cost. It could well be licensed. Uh, and you mix in other things that are playing out where retailers are sourcing cage feed or crate feed pork and poultry. All of this together uh, does not bode well, especially when uh, we are sitting here watching this play out.
The other element to this is, and this is just one example, uh, if any of you have been to the Food and Water Watch website, this is Ralph Nader's old public citizen group. And uh, they proudly tout, probably are justified in that they pushed Starbucks to start sourcing RBST free milk. And they did this in a way where they have some really sophisticated IT strategies, spent a lot of effort with this, and this public discussion is moving at the speed of the internet. Now, what do you suppose scientific societies are doing when they're dealing with this? Nothing. You know, they, they get together, have a meeting, and typically we'll get a group together to write a white paper. That'll take a few months to write the white paper. Then it gets reviewed by the board and plunked in the journal Animal Science, Journal of Dairy Science, seen about 10 to 12 months later by about 3,000 readers worldwide. Maybe. The public doesn't see this. And this is just another example of stupidity. So anyway, Starbucks, uh, if you go to their website, they have this link, click here, it takes you to a place where there's a letter that gets sent to the CEO of Starbucks, and it's pretty slanderous. It has uh, elements which says, hold the hormones. And they're continually grinding away at this, and uh, last time I looked, about 37% of what Starbucks was supposedly sourcing was RBST-free. This is important that Starbucks is the largest fluid milk operation, at least selling fluid milk in the United States. Uh, these folks are also pretty clever. I've told some of you about this. Uh, they sent a letter to me in January where they uh, had put a bunch of, of uh, language in the letter that represented federal law and the, and the statute numbers. And basically they wanted all of my correspondence from day one of my existence as a faculty member here, including email. They wanted all correspondence from all faculty with private sector research sponsors, so I didn't tell you guys that. And then they wanted all my correspondence with Monsanto because they think I'm a tout for Monsanto. Now, I, I get a plane ticket, but I don't get any money beyond that. And uh, so, what would be the intent of that request? Yeah, that's one thing. You think that'd take a lot of time to dig out? Yeah, I had my email subpoenaed once about eight years ago, and that was a circus going through that to find stuff that people wanted. Now, that didn't relate to this. Well, Penn State's exempt from the Right to Know Act, so University Council told them to take a hike. But these are the things that play out, and these folks have a lot of money to spend a lot more time than I do dealing with this. So that's an element here where these technologies allow them to drive things in ways that are remarkably effective. They use a lot of sophisticated IT and uh, generate stuff that leads to things like this, where my view is that the dairy industry is under siege, there's lots of labels out there that capture this. These are a couple of the more interesting. I've never thought the New York Times and the Wall Street Journal would be talking about the dairy industry in any way. And uh, last October, then in January, there's this headline, which cows do you trust? Was about the use of BST. And this would lead consumers and readers to think, well, that must be pretty dangerous stuff. And the, this is an editorial in the Wall Street Journal called Utter Madness. They simply said this was just way beyond stupid and everybody should be embarrassed. And uh, the reality is these things have an impact, but the fact is you try to use this as a tool to communicate with people and educate them. It's really, really difficult. They're getting mixed messages. When journalists call up people like me or others of you that want to talk about some technology, they have the article framed in general, and there's a villain, victim, and vindicator. So what role does scientists play in that deal, in that tripartite arrangement? Are we the villain, the victim, or the vindicator? Which one? No. We should. That was good, Darwin. We're the villain. We're the villain. Then they go talk to somebody that's a consumer or somebody that doesn't know squat about science to balance the story. 
or they go talk to one of these trolls at Food and Water Watch that will rip into any scientist in a way that disparages them. And so that, again, leads to an outcome where the reader looks at this and thinks, wow, what's going on here? And a part of this deal, as far as how we're viewed by science, if you look at TV and, and, and movies, there are not many heroes that are scientists. They're either you know, a little dorky or dangerous. And Jurassic Park would be a, Jurassic Park would be a good, good example of science run amok. And so I have waited in the fray, as many of you know, and uh, this is really a story of smoke and mirrors, and I framed that. That got some folks pretty unhappy in the dairy industry as well. But other elements that, that shape what I call the dairy case ecosystem, uh, there's a whole bunch of these. As this started building momentum, then people in the dairy industry felt they had to have a product in the market space, so they started sourcing uh, BST-free milk so that they could meet their consumer uh, needs, and they said our consumers want it. Uh, these are some examples. Kroger says, our customers increasing interest in our health and wellness is the basis for our decision. Uh, CDI, which is the big uh, co-op in California, said it's, we're no longer going to accept milk from cows treated with the growth hormone used to boost milk production. The reason is strictly consumer demand. And then Safeways have said many consumers have called to ask us to eliminate the use of hormones. Our goal is to provide customers products they want. And I'll show you some consumer data from well-conducted surveys that say that's just a load. The people that go to the grocery store to buy milk don't have, a lot of them, the vast majority, aren't interested in this. So these folks are out here talking about hormones in milk. Well, milk has got tons of hormones in it. All milk has hormones. Colostrum is loaded with it. And one of the interesting little ironies is just mystifying. We got this battle over BST, and we're adding vitamin D to milk, and vitamin D is a steroid hormone. And why aren't we concerned about that one? So as I think you appreciate, there's a lot of folks that I talk to that don't. What, to understand a hormone is really a venture. Uh, they don't understand the food system or animal production, so you, it's, to talk to them 45 minutes to give them some sense, that's a bit of a challenge. This is a summary about uh, the technology. As I've said, there's no difference in RBST containing milk and RBST free milk. There's about 50 picograms of BST in milk. Treatment doesn't affect it. Now, envision how you tell the consumer what 50 picograms is. You could say it's 10 to the minus 12 grams, but then to try to put that in another metric, that's what they need to hear and understand. And that's a trick. And a lot of scientists are not very good in dealing with the media, and they're not very good at taking complex messages built on the science jargon and nomenclature and translating that to understandable things that people can understand. And then a lot of folks out there have had a jarring experience with the science course someplace along the road. And uh, this is not the favorite topic, and they're for sure not talking about quantum mechanics at dinner. So they, they just, it's really hard to connect with them to get them excited about the role of science in a way that they can understand. Uh, there's a bunch of gossip that's swirling around about there being a test for RBST containing milk. That's nonsense. And some co-ops have stirred that one up again. And there's a long list, including the FDA, that have deemed milk harvested from RBST-treated cows to be safe for consumption. This has been the most inspected, reviewed technology and rolled out. It's been in use for, since 1994. Uh, and uh, there's no way that this is going to pose an increased health concern to cows or animals or humans. So what I'm going to do is, is start talking about the battle and elements of the battle <coughs> of public perception 
And this is then obviously one that involves lots of evidence and being persuasive in how you deliver it. Uh, but it's a lot more than simply about milk. Uh, there's a number of technologies that are under attack, and I'll talk about those that I've said. Uh, there's a bunch of folks that want the cows gone. The organic crowd would like us to be uh, on a plant-based diet. Uh, there's a few folks uh, sort of up over on the other side of this building that are championing that idea. Uh, there's some folks in the college that have talked about us doing factory farm research and dairy farm, which I'm kind of proud of. And so you have all of these elements right here in the ecosystem of this building on Ag Hill. Now, if you're in the dairy, dairy farming business and the cows go, it's kind of hard to have a dairy farm. And so the intent is obviously to get this offshore, and with that, then the dairy industry, as we know it, is going to be greatly changed uh, if we get to that point where production agriculture is moving offshore. And it's already happening. I mean, there's a lot of stuff being important, and that leads to all sorts of problems relative inspection, food safety. This melamine deal in China is a good example of that. Uh, and on and on it goes. So these are some questions I want you to consider uh, and think about. These aren't widely debated. The first is, what are the consequences of giving up an FDA-approved FDA biotechnology? Uh, how do we know other technologies will not be lost? I've already sort of answered this one. How will this impact future dairy research funding? And how will this impact private sector research and development? Well, the last one's already gotten to a point where that's predetermined as a determined outcome. Uh, it's getting more and more costly to get a product to FDA review. It takes a lot longer than it used to be. Uh, it's cheaper to get a human drug through. The margin of human drug using the same technology is a lot more. So the idea of a biotechnology being developed and applied in animal agriculture where you've got to sell it for maybe a dollar and hope the producer gets three bucks out of it and the margins are a lot smaller, that's a real trick. And uh, my observation is that outside the animal health box, I don't see any technologies uh, in the next few years moving down this path. And that'll have a big impact uh, as we move ahead because if we get in a crack with food production, need something that would be based on technology and research, we can't do that overnight. I mean, it takes 15 years to go from discovery to having a product ready to go, uh, being sold into the market space. There's the below hormone. A couple different versions of it. And uh, we have remarkable abilities to modify that so we can look at structure function and to think that uh, we can produce the quantities that are necessary to supply the dairy industry is just a remarkable accomplishment. When I first started, and we were looking at pituitary growth hormones, the reality was it cost about a couple thousand dollars a gram to purify that stuff back in those days to use for research. Well, you can probably manufacture the protein and put it in a bottle for a dollar a gram now. It's just unbelievable. So we're throwing, potentially throwing this down the tube over this nonsense. One way to uh, <coughs> convey the concentration of BST in milk, uh, that's the conversion of picograms on a percent basis. As I said, it doesn't change with supplementation. Uh, a lot of folks are surprised to know that it's a protein. It gets destroyed by pasteurization. Uh, then they're a little mystified to talk about digestion. All proteins that we consume uh, get digested. So a green bean protein and BST would go through the same fate in the gut. And then, uh, this is a little bit more complicated to talk to them about, and that is that BST doesn't bind to the 
somatotropin or growth receptor in cells, and the absence of that binding, there can't be any biological action uh, initiated. So there's multiple lines to say that there's no way on this planet that BST in milk is going to be a threat to health. Even if we infuse some of this in to anybody that'd like to volunteer, uh, we could show blood levels going up, but not anything else can happen. Now here is the slippery slope of this thing. And that's the, uh, the consumer ecosystem. There's all sorts of, of uh, billboards and photos that I've gotten that are out there. This is uh, one of the more recent ones. Uh, Rudders, which is in southern PA, they've now got these billboards up say, our cows produce milk naturally. Well, I don't know any cow that doesn't do it. I mean, is there some other way to do this? And then it says, Rudders, milk, no artificial hormones. Well, there's an interesting little nuance. If you make a protein that's the same as God makes in the cow, is that artificial? And then, uh, are we concerned about driving artificial cars? Or, you know, the shirt's probably artificial, and the glasses you guys got on are artificial. We should be concerned about that. And these are the things that have been championed in a way to say, well, go buy Rudder's milk because it's better for you. And I'll talk about some elements that have played out at PDA as far as new labeling guidance that will crash all this, so they're probably going to have to take that billboard down. Uh, another element of this is. Uh, the context and organic, this got the organic crowd stirred up. Time had a, this on the cover. It said, forget organic, eat local. And there's a whole slew of things that are designed to, to convey elements that say, this is better, that's better, and it's just uh, the Wild West as far as trying to understand what goes on out there. But for sure, we've got a discussion going on that differentiates food based on technologies and management practices used in production. That gets confusing, especially when no differences exist, and it's really misleading and creates a lot of confusion for consumers. Now, part of that confusion is based on the fact that a lot of folks have a really poor understanding of science. The National Science Foundation does a survey of science knowledge, and uh, they, do, they have 2,000 respondents, so they can extrapolate that to the greater population. One of the questions is, the center of the Earth is hot, true false. That's a pretty hard question, isn't it? And the last survey, 25% of college graduates missed that question. There's another question, which is a short answer, what's DNA? And so they got to you know, provide a sentence for that. That's a real interesting venture. And so in the absence of understanding, it's hard to communicate this. And if they don't like it because they hate science, <coughs> they're not going to pay attention to it. And then you have the reality that doing large-scale population education programs is really, really difficult. A good example is if you look at nutrition education, the money spent on reducing the incidence of overweight and obesity in the United States. If you plot the money spent in millions and millions and millions on that, that goes up. And if you plot the slope of the incidence of overweight and obesity, that's going up parallel. So from that, you conclude we spent more money on ways to reduce obesity, but we really made the population better. 66% of Americans are overweight or obese. So we can't be naive and think, we're going to go out there and have a program tell people what this is, they're going to pay attention and change their behavior. That's tough. It's really hard. It's especially tough when nobody's out there trying. A couple of examples of this. Uh, this is a composite of survey data from well-done surveys. Only about half of the folks out there have heard of traditional crossbreeding methods, even though it's been around since about 1715, at least documented. 
And if you want an interesting experience, uh, the next time you go to a social gathering of folks that don't know science, ask them to talk about what crossbreeding is. Uh, only 28% have said they've ever eaten a crossbred fruit or vegetable, and I don't, I don't think you can find anything else at the grocery store. I mean, this is, it's just, I mean, humans are a remarkable animal. I mean, you've got some terrifically wonderful folks out there, and if you look at the, at the herd as a whole, you'll think, my God, how did we get here? And, and I've, I've told some folks that if you take an average composite of us and go back to 1850 and say to our ancestors, hey, look how we did, I'm not so sure they'd be thrilled with that outcome. And then the other element, uh, only a third of the population is aware that there are any foods produced uh, through biotech and supermarkets, and there's a ton of them. I want to give you some survey data that will, I think, uh, clearly show that when those folks in the dairy industry are saying that consumers want this, that's just a load. Now, the other thing to appreciate is you can come up with a survey that gets you to a determined outcome. Uh, for example, Dean Foods, they had a vice president at the very summit. He should have spliced a bunch of slides up there. Well, an outfit called the Hartman Group, which is based in Seattle, they did the survey, and it was a survey of organic-minded consumers. That was in the small print. Well, that's a lot different population than an average population, including folks that don't embrace organic production practices. Then there's a lot of surveys where you select the list or you have very few choices to pick from. Uh, and one way that's, that's really important in designing these surveys is having to be open-ended. That is, you don't give them a list, people give you a top of the mind what they're concerned about. For example, if I had a question, true, false, are you concerned about consuming cancer-causing cucumbers? <laughs> what would you answer? And I'd say, I for sure know these are cancer-causing cucumbers. Are you going to say you're not concerned? So that's how you can shape the deal. Now, this is a data set from International Food Information Council. They do a yearly survey of biotechnology attitudes by consumers. The 07 survey's out. I didn't get the slide made. And they have a wonderful database that goes back. And in response to this question, are there any foods or ingredients that you have avoided or eaten less of? That population of respondents, you know, over time, it's you know, about half of the cohort is saying, yep, I'm concerned about something. Now, this could be saturated fat in the diet. It could be they've got a peanut allergy and they can't eat peanuts. It could be they've got a lactose intolerance. Who knows? And that's pretty consistent over time. Now, if you ask them the basis for their specific food safety concern, uh, this is from 497 responses, open-ended. They could put multiple responses down. Uh, the red tips it off. Only 3% are concerned about biotechnology as a basis for uh, food safety concerns. Now, this doesn't resolve plant from animal biotechnology. It certainly doesn't drill down to use of UST. You see their concerns. A uh, third of the crowd are the cohorts disease contamination of food, food preparation handling te uh, methodologies, and then this sort of vague response source, the production practice. But this clearly shows that biotechnology is not a top of the mind concern which then, it's interesting to look at that and reconcile that with what all these rocket scientists are saying, that saying consumers want this, and Dick Cotta, who runs CDI in California, uh, he's got a sound bite that says if consumers wanted blue polka dots in the milk, I'd put them in there. He's also the same guy in 2003 that sent a letter to FDA saying he's concerned about all this absence claim labeling, and now he's out here championing this is the best thing in the dairy industry in the last 10 years. Now this, uh, I've got a slide that will resolve this in a much 
more uh, refined way. And this is a survey, this is from 132 respondents. I've got a data set of over 500 people. It was done in California, same survey. And this is in response to what is your milk purchase decision based on? People go to the grocery store, what is the decision based on? And you can see over that, well, that cohort, 70%, it was based on price, expiration date, or fat content. In this survey, there wasn't one respondent that said BST was a basis for the decision. In the survey of 500 people in California, there was one respondent that said BST was the, BST free was the basis for the purchase decision. So that's, I think, compelling evidence to say that people that go to the grocery store aren't concerned. Uh, if you ask them what RBST stands for, or if they're familiar with the labeling, you get some respect, about 16% have some, at least they've heard of it. Now, if you want to have another venture, ask them what RBST stands for. And what does it mean, and why are they concerned about it? And that is an interesting venture. Uh, maybe the most compelling way to frame what consumers think of this is uh, in this first bullet. Last year, Dale Bauman, who's at Cornell, called up the Consumer Affairs Department Wegmans and said, how many complaints do you folks log in or questions that come from consumers in all your stores in their system? And you can see in 2006, they got 60,000 inquiries from their customers about something. Now, what it was, don't know. And so Dale asked, could they sort it down to BST use? They couldn't, but they could sort it down to biotechnology. So in 60,000 queries or questions to the Consumer Affairs Operation at Wegmans, only seven related to biotechnology. And that's the whole box of plant animal. Who knows what that is? At the Farm Show in 07, the Middle Atlantic Dairy Association encouraged folks to ask questions and fill out a card. And they only had two questions about antibiotics. And nobody talked about BST, which I find remarkable. So when you look at well-conducted survey data, there is the reality that a lot of consumers don't care. That's in contrast to what these wizards in the marketing departments and processes and retailers are saying. There is an interest. And so then that leads to the, my view that this is a cooked up, clever, thoughtful scheme to make a lot of money, not share it with producers, and do it in a way that throws science under the bus, producers opportunity and freedom to operate <coughs> under the bus, and then a scientific method. And these absence claims that said they uh, that concerned hormones, antibiotics, and pesticides infer that non-labeled products contain them. Uh, consumers think that the hormone statement that infers the milk is free of hormones. I've addressed that. And there's a bunch of folks out there that think organic milk is hormone-free. I occasionally go to Tate Farms, they get a little ad out there that somebody's selling hormone-free beef. And uh, <laughs> you know, I just can't help myself. Last fall, I said to this lady behind the cash register, I said, well, who's selling that hormone-free beef? And how do you know it's hormone-free beef? And you know that's not possible? And so, you know, she thought of some Luddite. <laughs> uh, so th there's an element here where this is not the end of the discussion. And here's my list of other technologies that are at risk. And this is not in any rank order. Uh, but for sure, the reproductive biologist should be concerned because those sync programs using those hormones are going to be a target. Why, why, why differentiate BST from all those the hormones used for synchronization programs? There's already a rumens and free milk being sold in the state of Washington. I've got the cap and, a, and an image of the label. And I can't imagine what consumers would think rumensin is. But somebody 
has got a marketing scheme that's got remittance free milk, uh, growth promotes the cattle industry. That is under attack now. The National Cattle and Beef Association is a hot, just a much better outfit as far as managing their brand name. They've been around 100 years. Why there isn't a counterpart dairy organization that's been around for 100 years that represents producers, I have no idea. And you don't see a lot of, I mean, you see some discussion, but it's nothing like this BST free. Uh, antibiotics, don't need to say anything about that. That's got lots of things happening. Uh, artificial insemination, uh, I'm just waiting for them, them being the welfare group, or PETA to express concern over how semen collection takes place. Or if you have to use electrostimulation to collect semen. Can you imagine the possibilities in marketing that one? Uh, it's, just not, it's, it's amazing it hasn't happened. It's just absolutely amazing. Uh, genetic advancements, that would be uh, you know, all the GMO crops, feedstuffs. Animal housing and restraint, that's already happening. There's been a lot of time and effort plunked into coming up with best management practices for gestation crates, as an example, or uh, cages for layers. And all it takes is some large retailer to say, we don't want it, we're going to source it. And you then have a response where people start scrambling to dump all this technology. And best management practices built in a science evidence base to start providing whatever they want. So the deal as far as cage-free, crate-free pork and poultry is an example. And then at the bottom list, the cows. It'd really be the animals. Then you mix in the, the growing uh, tension between urban suburban uh, folks moving into the country, uh, a lot of regulatory burden over nutrient management, air quality, water quality, uh, us sitting here in a pretty passive way. This is a mess waiting to happen. I, I suggest you ought to add milking machines to your list. Uh, they are immoral and they cause mastitis. <laughs> That's, I thought about that All one. All that fondling of And they electrocute the cows every now and then. Right? Yeah. That's a good one. Okay. Anybody, anybody else have another thing for the list? I mean, we're laughing, but it's, this is uh, really a very serious matter. This gives you some example. Chipotle, which uh, is a really green, left-leaning outfit. They put this billboard up in Denver. Somebody sent me this. This says, get antibiotics from your doctor, not your beef. And this was put up about a mile from NCBA headquarters, which created really a big ruckus. And so what they're doing is say, serving naturally raised beef in Denver. Well, when people drive by that billboard, now they're, you know, more than a few are going to think, well, geez, I eat beef, I'm getting antibiotics. And, and so on and on this goes. And one of the elements I'd set up front that's driving this uh, these are the folks, and this is not an inclusive list, but these are the threats. Uh, the Humane Society of the United States, this is not the outfit that manages the local animal shelter. Uh, this is a $120 million organization that's got a legal department. They now have got six attorneys, and they're just the business side of who to sue next. Uh, this number is actually low. This cohort and a bunch of others are now spending about a half a billion dollars a year. Uh, there's a website, if you've got some free time, called guidestar.org. This is where all nonprofits have to park their tax returns, their IRS 990 forms, for public inspection. So you can go there. You can see the Professional Dairy Managers of Pennsylvania uh, tax return. You can see 4-H Club tax returns. You can see your church tax return. And you can get some real inf information about what is happening. So these groups, Farm Sanctuary, Food and Water Watch, PETA, uh, PETA collected about $24 million in income in their last tax report. And this presumes their tax returns are, their tax returns are legit. Don't know that one. So on the other side of this, animal agriculture, the people that are championing science and, and uh, 
all the stuff that we do, we're not even spending the rounding error of the 500 million, and just or 500 million. To show you how ridiculous this has gotten, uh, animal science, dairy science, and poultry science together are this entity called FAST, the Federation for Animal Science Societies. They had one person in D.C. doing scientific liaison stuff. That faded away when FAST had a budget problem, rebuilt the budget, and they had decided they don't want to do that. Well, even one person in D.C., when you've got these groups there, I mean, this is, this, I don't know how to describe how stupid that is. The commodity groups are representing lots of things, not necessarily science. And so the whole process that's playing out has got lots of elements of trouble. And, uh, you know, in the time-honored way, a lot of folks that with farm practices, well, if you just wait long enough, this will fade away and all will return to normal. Well, this is not going to happen. And it's just not going to happen. What was that one of John's hot from Dead Meat? Oh, have you, have you watched yeah. that one? No. Yeah, this will you'll throw up this one. There, these are cartoon, cartoon movies that are extraordinarily inaccurate and incendiary as far as production practices. So if you if you Google Matrix, then on your you got a computer, right, Alan? Good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I'm just teasing. You can watch the movie and. So, have, have any of you seen Matrix? Now, how would you describe them? Yeah. Yeah. And how I've got parts of Johns Hopkins is an interesting story that I won't get into because I don't know much, many of the details. And there's a whole list of these. Here's some other sound bites. The one that I want you to focus on, the guy that runs Whole Foods Market, which is sort of the epicenter of the natural organic food grocery store industry. Here's his soundbite. It'd be better if human beings would stop killing, eating, enslaving, exploiting animals. I'm personally committed to that very philosophy. So that's his game plan. And you can see some of these other folks, what they've said, uh, which, you know, I mean, their agenda is very clear. They want our head in a spike, and if we disappear, that's good. Now, at Whole Foods Market, uh, how many of you have been in one of these their stores? Raise your hand. Macy, what, how you, what was that experience like? My son who lives in Dallas is about lives two miles from one, so I just go there to check it out. I was down there one time, they had grass-fed New York strips and meat case next to garden variety New York strips. It was a $4 pound differential. Now that time I didn't, I thought about, well, what the hell is the difference there? Can you explain, get the butcher out here? And, but it's just, you know, there's, there's a uh, market niche there where people pay a lot more for food, and these folks have figured that out and are making a lot of money. Now if you look at the organic milk market, that's only about 5% of the milk volume on a dollar basis. If you look at it on the volume, maybe 3.5%. So the organic milk market slice is not that big a deal, but there's a disproportionate amount of ruckus and uproar because those folks are really active in the public discussion and the folks in the dairy industry. So here's the question I tell producer audience and others, what are you going to do? You just can't sit there. This is a battle that takes place at discussion and time. So the reality is there's no organization, ADSA is not doing anything, DMI is not, International Dairy Foods, which is the processors, they're not going to do anything because they created this mess. And then National Milk, which is this, the alliance of co-ops, they're in the thing in a way that's dysfunctional. None of them have said anything to defend this in a way that allows producers to use a profit tool, defend science. And it's about uh, three weeks ago, this, this was a really hard question and a lot of people were feeling pretty discouraged. Well, what has played out, uh, October 22nd, Secretary Wolf released some new guidance for 
uh, labeling of milk, dairy, and manufactured product, dairy products in the Commonwealth. You can read this. This will, uh, if enacted in a robust way, will end the absence claims. Uh, there's 16 uh, companies selling milk in the Commonwealth that are deemed to be non-compliant. So they have until January 1 to redo their cartons and labels. And that's a big cost item. That's not much time. And we'll see how this all plays out. PD, and I've left out, shall consider the following be prohibited or misbranded food under the Food Act due to A, a compositional claim which has not been confirmed through laboratory analysis performed at applicant's expense. When they say it's RBST free, they've got to prove it. Well, that's going to be not possible because there's no assay to do that. The uh, deal that's been playing out now is that co-ops are forcing or strongly encouraging producers to sign affidavits to say they're not using BST. If they refuse to sign the affidavit, they get a hauling charge or some deduct, so there's, a, there's some economic strong arming going on here. So the second element is that these claims, label can't be based on anything that's sworn to statement, affidavit, or testimonial. So that'll take that all away. And this is the first of any state in the United States that's done this. They have the, the legal authority to do this, still on time building this, and this, this will likely lead to some legal pushback because the folks that want to differentiate products by absence claims are not going to go down easily. Then there's some other elements that are, this is an interesting, where a specific compound or substance is naturally present in the product, a statement that the compound or substance is not present, and you can read all this, has to be uh, you know, verified by laboratory analysis. The last one, a specific compound is prohibited from being present in the product or statute, a statement that the compound is not present, da 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 da. Good example of that. You go to buy a vegetable oil, it says cholesterol free. Well, hell, there's no cholesterol in vegetable oil. And they're saying cholesterol free because of the concern about dietary cholesterol and cardiovascular disease risk. Now, the ugly little reality is that dietary cholesterol doesn't contribute very much to CBD risk. I mean, there's other things in the diet. So, this is one of the rem more remarkable elements uh, about how you can confuse <coughs> customers. So basically, is there anything hot off the press about this that you can share in the public? Um, no. I <laughs> well, I would say that there'll be pushback. How about that? Oh, yeah. Yeah. Then on top of this, there's a, an effort going where some producers have filed a petition with the Milk Marketing Board in Pennsylvania seeking a hearing so that if they do get hijacked out of using this, they get paid a fair premium. A fair premium is probably way above a dollar fifty, a hundred weight. So the folks, so that would dent the the margin for the retailers and processors. So the the next battle will be over what's right here, and it's wonderful we got the Commonwealth in this instead of some entity that would be a producer group or you know individual out there hacking away in this. And this is yeah, you guys know this one. Lots of stuff parked there. These have become public bulletin boards. Rose. Uh, set these blogs up. I've got two offshore blogs. I haven't done this. I've come close. And that is to do something that would be sort of incendiary that Penn State might not be happy with. I wouldn't want to put them on the Penn State blog. But what's interesting is that nobody next door cares. There's no oversight. So whatever I want to put on there is okay with. And I presume that would be the case going forward. So at this point, I'll stop answering questions you have. Ron? Terry, when you are talking with dairy manufacturers, whether it's Dean's Foods or others, have you ever challenged them about their use of recombinant renin enzyme for cheese manufacture? 
the, so a lot uh, of the companies who were making that this strong claim about hormone-free milk are also using recombinant renin. The, the, the experience I have is limited, and I'm usually talking to somebody that's a marketing <laughs> guy that doesn't know squat about the science. The best example was this, the guy that talked at the very summit was Dean's Foods. He, he got asked a question about, well, what's your markup on this product? Because I don't know. And then uh, Charlie Gardner said, well, what about those hormones used for synchronization programs? And I were any of you in the audience for that? Somebody had to explain to him what synchronization programs were, so he didn't have a, he didn't have a clue. And so I, I think what happens is that the marketing group, you know, they want to grow margin, grow profits, and so whatever you come up with, let's get it out there, and if it passes the smell test, it's okay. They don't know anything about the science. And they, and they really, in a very passionate way, so they don't care about us, or science, or the right thing. And they're perfectly happy to exploit producers. Terry, I, I think we ought to commend our State Department of Agriculture for the leadership that they've taken here on this labeling issue. <coughs> My question, Lucy, is a letter-writing campaign of support being helpful in farming and farm shine and so forth? This is having a ripple effect. Other states are now looking at, mm -hmm. at to what they might be able to do. And uh, that, I think, will escalate. I'm wondering if any of these letters could get in the national press. Uh, USA Today, uh, uh, New York Times, blah, blah, blah. It's interesting. I have had uh, know, six or seven letters go to either the Boston Globe, the Wall Street Journal, the New York Times, saying here it is, this is in response to something that's been said. I haven't had one of those make it. And so there's a bit of it. Uh, what trick is to get that letter published, don't know. Mm -hmm. yeah. So that was a further impetus where I said, well, what the hell with the newspapers? Just put this out on the internet and you can publish in real time and I can write something and have it up in 15 minutes and not worry about a review board or editorial board looking at it. And then these seem to be picked up and spun out by, by folks that are out there helping amplify the message. But Yeah, I think there's a general impression that it's radical groups that are promoting this, like enlisted present. But the industry feeds into this as well. For example, for a long time, Tyson advertised that they didn't feed steroids to the chicken. No one in the industry feeds steroids to the chicken. But this was Tyson. Yes. The, the, the uh, forces that drive how companies market stuff, if you look at all that evidence base, they are as involved as all of these activist groups. They're shameless about it. Uh, they will, they're very good at talking but not saying anything. And they've obviously greenlighted all these marketing campaigns. Yeah, it's a real mess. BC? I'll just take it back to uh, two different perspectives. One is being a mother, so I got my PDA role, and the other being a, uh, I guess, a consumer. We had Libby at John Hopkins about a month ago, and after visiting the intern and the resident, the godfather, the department head comes in to talk to her, and she dropped a little weight. And he, he sat down and said, no, I need you to drink three big glasses of milk a day. You need to consume three big glasses of milk a day. And so she was very intent listening. On the way home, those two billboards. The rudders. Right. You see the rudders go first. Now you have a little mind that's kind of, you know, mulling around and thinking about hormones and thinking she's not too anxious to enter puberty. And hearing that people say hormones make you a little bit moody and crazy, and she doesn't want to be like that, 
And you can guess the discussions that follow. Yeah. So my little 10-year-old mind isn't the only one that thinks that way. That's so right. it is, that took me as a mother to a different level of being disturbed about the messages that children get when it comes to general nutrition and considering, I think, correct me, but one in seven women actually die of osteoporosis who they didn't even know what. That's what you know, the late Ann Richards used to say in her um, campaign, and I think Leslie Stiles, the Commission for Women, used that same figure. Another flip side of that, um, in going to uh, Bridget Barrett, who is uh, a physician down in Middletown, and as I was talking to Bridget, she, she warned me, and this was about two years ago, that you know, Libby was nine years old, and that we, not, we have to watch her milk and chicken consumption because we would not want her to enter puberty early due to all the hormones. So, I was, this is oh, yeah. a physician. And so I asked her, to, this was in her medical data, and I asked her to pass it on to me, of course, she never could. But it's, it, is, it is just everywhere in society that concern. There was a news clip where in West Coast, California, they were looking at the BST issue, they had a producer I got the transcript. They had two sentences from him. Then they talked to a mother who uh, was really concerned about uh, her observation that, that girls were entering puberty earlier. Must be all those hormones and milk. And then they talked to they faded and started talking to my food and water watch. Which, well, man, that's the, that's the, what's going on. So then viewers, you know, they're looking at well, geez, there's something going on here. And the fact is, there's no evidence based to say that's the case. John? This isn't related to RBST, but I don't know if you saw it or how many people saw the editorial written in the evening yesterday about beef coming into campus, which is a cloned cow. And they literally talked about saying that they were three headed cows, which were cloned animals. And so it, it's a whole bunch of biology that didn't make any sense. Well, we should. There, the, a friend of mine in D.C. sent me a press release. This was about the associate director and director of housing and food services saying they weren't going to serve food from cloned animals. And the, so I sent them to Eva Pell, who's the vice president for research, and Bob Steele and a couple others saying, well, is there some discussion about this? And I just got the green light this morning, or last night, to say, well, you can call her up. I, she made a decision. That's, that's, uh, so now we'll see how this all pans out. So I'll stir that pot. My encouragement would be that you can write a letter to the Daily Collegian and educate those kids, that, the ones that read the newspaper. The reality is you're not going to modify their behavior, but at least you'll be heard. I didn't see it. They milk bowls? Well, the case you're making is that it's all about uh, uh, public perception, and that we're probably not getting uh, our point of view across or the science across, whereas these groups are excellent at uh, getting press releases out. So. so would you suggest then, and I'm, I'm sure you are suggesting, that we get more proactive, but it, at a level enough where, say, a Department of Animal Science might have a position for a publicity person? Yeah. 
I mean, the way we do that, you know, so we've got a lot of things happening. Sally Bearer, freelances, the things you see in the web are from that. Uh, another element which I didn't speak to, really at the root of this is we've got a uh, big need to have a lot better science education in middle school and high school. Uh, and that's important to get kids interested in this. We're doing, it, you know, if you look at the test, national test scores, not a great job of that. Uh, the solution is not overnight. This is probably going to be a generational deal. Uh, it may not be if this goes fast and the other side wins. Don't know that that's going to happen, but this is always going to be there. And, and the, the dysfunction is these opponent groups need somebody to attack. So they really don't want us to go away, because then who would they attack? So we're good, I mean, we're important to their business plan. And so that adds a nuance to it, which makes it interesting. But Doug, to answer your question, there, the, who out there is defending science uh, in agriculture across the platform of animal and plant? Uh, no, the, I, I'm agreeing with you. Yeah. I'm saying that departments like this should devote the resources. I've run two experiments to try to, the years and years ago, to get the college to create a center for biotechnology. At that time, it was to have an 800 phone number and somebody there to answer questions and put out stuff in paper. Three years ago, the idea was to have it move in a way that would be more agile and based on the internet and web-based technologies. Ted Alter put together a committee, went through the deal, came up with a plan, and then he said, I haven't got any money. So we thought, well, what is this? So, I mean, and so what that says is that it's not a high enough priority. Jana? I just want to make one comment. Um, just so you know, that maybe there's some hope for the future. When Terry gave this talk to the governor's school, the whole 64 scholars this summer, uh, we did a little pre-talk um, experiment where they had test-based RBST through milk, which I got from Iron Dairy. Uh, <laughs> they both signed up. And, and conventional, yeah, the three samples. Of course, they couldn't help it. They enjoyed that, but we got a standing ovation in the office. It wasn't quite exact. I mean, it's all except for the PDA legislation. It was about the same. Oh. Seriously, they used the standing ovation. So we got more revved up. There's an organic kid in the crowd. But that, that's the kids. They were into it. I mean, they're all organic. But we're all organic kids. This was a kid that was a supportive organic. Yeah. There was Well, isn't that the key that we really need to give up on people 40 and older? We aren't going to convince them we've got to spend our efforts on kids under 20 and under 10. Behavior modification in a sustained way in adults, you've got about a 10% chance of that is that they go get therapy. So going out there and giving a talk in uh, Troy, Pennsylvania is a way to get information out, but that's not going to change lots of behavior in a sustained way. Most of us should be under therapy anyway. <laughs> 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 I was just wondering, have you had any survey among our students from the state of awareness? Our students? Yeah. No. Well, you guys should do that in class. Yeah, yeah. I had a uh, very interesting student who thanked himself for taking a biotechnology testimony because now he knows what technology to work on. When I was teaching what's now 300, it used to be 200, we had uh, a couple weeks about uh, science and society or biotechnology in the barnyard. And one year, there was an announcement there was going to be a group downtown uh, campaigning against the use of BST and Pazilac 
And so a bunch of kids in class went down and engaged them. I didn't go. Apparently it was a spirited discussion at the corner of college and Allen. And they came back and told the rest of the class about this. And so they thought this was fantastic. So they engaged in some advocacy that, uh, you know, they trapped that in a way, I think, that they all remember that story. Now what they had as far as an impact on the other side, I kind of got a clue. So you and John can rub this up. <clears throat> well, we're talking about their future careers. Whether they're going to have one or not. That's right. Bye. I think you mentioned that you know you're not going to be able to, to take a, a pre-credit science course and train everybody, but I think if we look at your slides and try to pull a little sound bite out of there, but you know a real short talking points, the one where you had the percentage of RBST or BST in milk that is killed by pasteurization, you know it's nature by pasteurization, and if you eat it, it's digested anyways. You know there are four quick points that. If we want to go out and talk to people, if somebody brings it up in your presence, you know, you can, here we go. Good. Yep. A lot of the stuff's in the blog, I think, is we've got to read it. Yeah. The, Great. But the topic isn't necessarily RBST. They jump around, you know, they've been attacking IGF, and, and as soon as you dispel that, they go right to another hormone, so they're interested in steroid. You know, individual targets can switch, and I've been in meetings where we established that they, you know, what they're picking on is wrong, and in a week or two they find another hormone and they're off with the same story, they just change their slides and say, now it's this. So it's not just one component, it's all kinds of things that they're just grasping to. And like I said, they change, no, no scientific evidence, they just all of a sudden are making presentations that something else in milk is causing this. Well, there's, you know, milk's poisonous and then you've got milk components that are under attack. You know, but my experience is most of this is driven by people that are either you know, humane, don't want animals, or vegetarians. Uh, that, that's my experience. You know, that's a background. It's not all, but, but they are the real drivers, and I suspect that uh, a lot of them are the promoters of the donations that are going into these groups. And what is a story that hasn't been told is a lot of those folks at the top end of those nonprofits are making a pile of money. So this is another driving force. Jobs depend on this storage. Yeah, and uh, when you look at uh, the tax returns, uh, and see that much money flowing into the organization, and uh, you know there's an element of well, okay, what's the big wheel making? And so if you're making a lot of money, you're going to be real interested in keeping the campaign going and stirring the pot and creating attention because attention brings donations. Okay, any other questions? Thank you. Thanks a lot. This has been a Dairy and Animal Science podcast. For more information, visit das.psu.edu. To see our blog site, go to blogs.das.psu.edu. Thanks for listening.